On behalf of the Strauss Center and the Clement Center and the University of Texas, I want to say welcome to all of you. I know some of you haven't been to Austin before, so on behalf of the state of Texas, let me welcome you as well. It is a, uh, it is a special occasion uh, because, for well, for several reasons, but what I want to emphasize here is that uh, Ambassador Robert Strauss, for whom the Strauss Center, of course, is named, passed away recently, and uh, this is the first formal event the Strauss Center's had since that um, occasion. And in many ways, it, it's, it's apt, because one of the things that I've come to appreciate over time about Ambassador Strauss was that at the end of the day for Ambassador Strauss, what really mattered was what's in the best interest of the company, not what's in the best interest of party or faction or politics, is, is involved as he was in politics. And we are going through a national debate, indeed a global debate, on the balance between privacy and security as mediated through disruptive technological change that very much begs for that sort of attitude, finding pragmatic solutions that can provide elements of a win for everyone involved and for recognizing everyone has legitimate stakes in these debates. Uh, against the backdrop of those sorts of considerations, I, I'm very proud that we're having this event. And the specific reason I'm proud is when you look at the mix of people that are here in this room that will be participating in the event over the next few days, it's an extraordinary cross-section of, of the debate itself. We have people who very identifiably... The debate itself is one that requires... Uh, a longer-term perspective than is, is often being given. And I hope over the next couple of days uh, in our discussions, and in, especially in the Q&A that will follow from the sessions themselves, we're going to see some common ground emerge. We have very diverse opinions, but I know we have people who respect one another's opinions, and I think in the, in the spirit of Ambassador Strauss, we'll be able to move forward the dialogue in a way that's very helpful to the country. We're getting off to a great start with Chris Inglis being here tonight to address us as our dinner keynote speaker. As you probably know, Chris retired uh, from his long period of service just this past January, and we sh in a moment we'll congratulate him for this, but let me just underscore the magnitude of this service. 41 years in service of the nation, 30 of those years in the Air Force, 9 years active duty, 21 years in the Air National Guard, and it's a pleasure <laughs> 28 years at the NSA. And the past seven and a half years as the deputy director of the NSA, the top civilian official, uh, Chris, uh, your service to the country is extraordinary, and we're, we're most pleased to hear from you tonight. Thank Thanks, you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Um, it is a real pleasure to be here, not least of which is this is not Washington. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I've never been to Austin before. What a delightful place. I've only been here for three hours. I'm wondering why I wasn't here earlier um, in a 59-year history of kind of traversing the planet Earth. Um, but I, like um, Bobby, um, am delighted to be in a venue like this, um, not least of which is because of the diversity in the room, right? The diversity of perspectives, the diversity of experience is going to, I think, make for a rich, if not lively, discussion over the next uh, few days. And I think that should be described as a feature. Right? That's not a challenge for anybody who's trying to win something for the particular perspective or experience you bring to bear. Uh, but in the spirit of this great democracy, it's diversity that frankly gives us our strength. And I am looking forward to a discussion across the next two or three days that is a conflict of ideas that ultimately achieves a reconciliation of those ideas for the common purpose of sustaining those things we all hold near and dear. And what I'd like to do tonight, and I've got some slides to essentially make sure that we know where we are at any moment in time, 
is to have a discussion based on first principles, not so much to kind of make some assertions from an NSA perspective. Um, that's the mainstay of my experience, and so I would admit to being somewhat um, partial about the perspective that I enjoy. Um, but to perhaps take a step back and uh, talk about what are those things that we can all quickly agree to, what then is the basis for discussion about how do we achieve some reconciliation <laughs> or balance in the various things that we're trying to achieve at once um, so that the rest of the discussion might then benefit from we agreed on A, we're now trying to figure out how to achieve that, however difficult a proposition that might be, um, and we can then agree on what the right formulation, what the right calculus is underneath that. I would admit from an NSA perspective that over time um, we have been, A, somewhat opaque, um, not kind of a rich part of this discussion. Being 30 miles from Washington has its advantages. It also has its uh, perhaps <laughs> downside. Um, I would also admit from NSA that we're somewhat uh, geeky, right? You know, it's a kind of term of endearment that I would use. Uh, but we tend to start in the middle of our story, kind of ask us what we do, and we'll tell you immediately about some piece of technology, some particular protocol, some particular application quickly kind of exceeds your ability or desire to know anything more about that and the conversation becomes, you know, two people talking past one another. And so I'd actually like to step back a little bit and kind of begin this again um, from a standpoint of first principles. Until I'm retired, I don't know how these things work anymore. Oh, there you go. So the framework of discussion that I'd like to go through tonight um, would be to step back in my pithy way, say, you know, kind of, can we agree on the true nature of things? Um, and the things in this regard would be two things. One, what's the nature of the place where the work that NSA does, and I'll be very narrowly framed in that regard, um, where does the surveillance take place? Where does the intelligence mission take place? What are the true natures? What's the true nature of that domain? Um, so, for example, sometimes NSA would be asked, why don't you just make this easy? Why don't you build a SIGINT system, an intelligence system, that never encounters a U.S. person, or for that matter, an innocent in the world, right? Why don't you just go after the bad guys? Go after their networks. Um, as I'll describe in this talk, it turns out that while that once might have been possible, it's no longer possible, right? It's one place. It's the same place. And so we need to all agree that, you know, that that's the true nature of the place and that there's a different formulation of the problem. It might well be that what we have to ask of NSA is not that it never encounters, you know, an innocent in the world, but that it knows precisely how to identify that, um, and it does the right thing all the time. Um, and I'm kind of to quote Margot, who at my table was kind of giving me some very insightful advice about this talk. Um, not so much practices the art of what, what am I allowed to do, but perhaps kind of devolves down to what should I do? You know, what's the right policy formulation in that regard? Um, that then, I think, um, gets us to a place where we say we agree to these immutable principles um, and then perhaps provides a basis for a reconciliation on the way forward. And, and my argument would be that unless you have that conversation up front, that all the tactical issues and much of what we've been talking about over the last nine months in particular on the front pages of the Washington Post, the New York Times, um, or the Guardian, we've been talking about tactics. We've been talking about issues that perhaps are at the edge of the fundamental, the core issues that are important to us. And I think we need to start at the center before we can move to the edge. Um, kind of by way of example, I would simply say that if NSA kind of tried to, if people tried to understand NSA, um, you would kind of come to the quick conclusion that NSA has two missions, right? And, and one of those missions is essentially characterized as breaking codes, essentially conducting intelligence on adversary um, communications wherever they might be in the world, um, kind of in the parlance that might be the breaking codes um, piece of it. Um, and the other mission would be an information assurance mission, the defensive aspect of that, where we essentially make codes. We try to make sure that we are um, defending our own communications wherever they might be in the world. That used to be, and I emphasis used to be, 
characterized, there's an away game and there's a home game. Um, there's a kind of piece of the mission where essentially you're acting on other people's networks, adversary networks. Um, kind of there are innocents abroad who do deserve the same kind of protection that U.S. persons deserve. Um, but you're acting kind of on adversary networks abroad, right? And you're at the same time trying to defend your networks, whether they're domestic or whether perhaps they're somewhat of a garrison abroad, right? But you control those. Um, that notion of there are two different places where these missions are worked um, is perhaps um, an aspect of inertia, um, and it's also an aspect of a misunderstanding. That there aren't two networks anymore. There aren't two places anymore. Those have long since <coughs> insidiously grown together, um, such that we're actually doing both of those missions in one place. Um, and to make it even more complicated, you know, what used to be a governmental issue and a private sector issue, they're all doing their work in a common place known as cyberspace. And I'd like to explain that to some greater degree. Um, by way of perhaps inspiration, I'll just show you this chart. Um, this is actually a chart that was displayed inside NSA on some given day in 2013. Uh, the derivation of this chart would be secret in terms of how we came to know it. But you could actually come to know the things that are displayed on this chart and essentially by um, in arrears, kind of, kind of after the event, putting together all the bits and pieces. Um, the likes of many telecommunications providers have done that. And what this displays in terms of the blue dots um, is a set of entities, principally the financial sector of the United States and to some degree the United Kingdom and Australia, um, under a massive what's called denial of service attack. Um, imagine that somebody in internet space is throwing Nerf balls at you um, such that you know the kind of system hasn't been destructed, it hasn't been disrupted permanently, but you can't get to it because there are too many Nerf balls between you and the front door. And that's what's happening to all the blue dots here. Um, the red dots are the place from which those Nerf balls are being launched. That's the place from which the uh, actual denial of service attack is being launched. And the yellow dots, much more numerous, um, that's the foundation um, kind of from which the red dots essentially gather their strength <coughs> and hurl those Nerf balls around the wall, uh, the world. The reason I show you this chart is not to kind of, you know, opine about, you know, what may or may not have been happening on that one day in 2013, but most folks looking at this would say, turns out that the world ganged up on the United States and to some degree London and um, perhaps Sydney on a given day in 2013. This actually happened 200 times um, in 2013 and, and maliciously, wantonly attacked the United States. Uh, that's actually not what happened. And what happened was a particular nation state, that's the secret here, a particular relatively small nation state, which is not sitting under any one of the red dots. Um, it's sitting kind of obliquely under one of the yellow dots, so you get a clue as to where they might be on this chart. Now, it turns out they were actually fomenting um, this attack on the United States. Um, and your, therefore, surface-level observation about what's happening here would completely mislead you as to what's transpiring right in this um, particular domain. You would be led to some false conclusions about the true nature of the world if you used your knowledge of geography or your knowledge of perhaps kinetics, right, physics, right, to say, I think I understand what's happening here, and I think I then know not just what the proximate cause is, but what we should then do as a response to that. And I'd like to then spend a few slides perhaps talking about a better way to understand the true nature of cyberspace. As most people try to understand cyberspace, you know, and that's a term of art, right, that might be considered as the Internet plus all the things that are attached to it, um, I think in the next year, two, three, ten, right, you know, cyberspace and the Internet will be one and the same. Um, but I'm going to use that term essentially as the Internet plus. Most people try to think about that. They quickly come to the conclusion of it exceeds the field of view. It exceeds the mind's ability to understand it at once. And so they just say, look, it's a, it's a morass of things, devices, computers, um, communication links, people, um, practices, <coughs> protocols. It's something I couldn't possibly get my mind around. It's a complicated thing. That's why I hire IT specialists. 
Uh, but it turns out that if you take that view and say, I'm going to delegate this out to the IT shop, the information technology shop, there are all sorts of policy choices. There are all sorts of national security choices that you've then delegated. And for want of understanding how it truly works, right, you might then, just like that slide I showed you a moment ago, come to the wrong conclusions about what's really happening in this space and what the right kind of response to that might be. And so I'm going to offer a model that perhaps teases that out in a way that we might better think about that. Um, so as opposed to this tumble-jumble, I'm going to build it as a series of five layers. Right? Of course, it doesn't really exist like this, but this is a way to think about it and a way to perhaps tease out how you perhaps think about what are the biases that are helpful, what are the biases that are unhelpful, what are the realities that are true about the space, such that when we come to some sense of what the immutable first principles are, we can say, yep, I think that's the way it really works. And if we're going to make some thoughtful policy choices, discriminate between the can and should, right, we're basing that upon um, some basis of reality. Like any domain of interest in the world, right, um, cyberspace, if that's a domain, and I um, observe that I think it is a domain in its own right because it has unique characteristics, it behaves in a way that other domains, maritime domain, air domain, diplomatic, diplomatic domain, they don't behave quite this way. Um, like any domain of interest, it has bookends. Right? And the bookends in this case are the planet Earth on the one side right, and kind of people on the other. If it's not something that is rooted, grounded in the planet Earth, you'd have to ask, why do I care about that, right? If it simply exists on the backside of Mars, it might be interesting, but we only care about Mars because it's in the same galaxy. It's the same planetary system as the planet Earth. So even it, right, has a nexus, a grounding in the Earth. On the other side, you've got the people layer. Again, if it isn't too from or about people, you'd have to ask, why is this a domain of interest? Uh, the reason I put these two bookends up is that much of our intuition about the space known as cyberspace derives from our experience in these two. Right? Let me start with people. Our experience with people is that certain people in the world have privileges um, different, distinct from other people in the world. The U.S. Constitution makes that case. If you're a United States citizen, or for that matter, a United States person, there are certain privileges, unalienable rights, that are essentially guaranteed by virtue of the Constitution, Constitution to you. That's not to say that innocents abroad, other people in the world, don't deserve those same rights and privileges, but they're not guaranteed to the same degree in the U.S. Constitution. They're extended by virtue of policy or treaties or things of that sort. If you're an NSA, the reason that layer matters is that you are obligated, by virtue of the Constitution, the laws, and the policies that are derived from that, um, to understand when you've encountered a U.S. person in the world and treat them in a certain and special way. And then there are extensions to innocents who are foreign persons in the world that essentially derive from the laws or the policies that are enacted within the United States. And so you have to care about the distinctions between and amongst people in that layer. I would say the bias that's induced by that layer is a positive bias in cyberspace. It actually help us helps us figure out right, how to discriminate, um, how to actually kind of make some choices about not simply what we can do, but, but by extension of that, what we should do in the space. Uh, geography is not so kind to us. Geography induces a bias in the space of cyberspace, not least of which other spaces. It tells us, I think I know how things in the world work based upon my knowledge of geography. I think I know who's in charge of what. I think I know who, uh, how things work in the world based upon my knowledge of the physics associated with geography or the territorial imperatives that are essentially defined by geography. An example comes to mind. Right? If you ask you know, any kind of citizen of the world who's been through third grade, how does communication get from New York to San Francisco in the middle of an American day? Uh, most thoughtful people would say, 
I know the answer to that thing. Um, I can actually take a straight line, a string, put it on the planet um, Earth, and say it's a much shorter distance to go west, westerly from New York to San Francisco, get there in about 3,000 miles and kind of light speed, that's a couple of milliseconds. That's how a communication gets from New York to San Francisco. Turns out that noon in an American day, um, cyberspace knows that that's not really the right answer, um, that if you go east, you're likely to get to San Francisco faster. Why? Right? Because the pipes are clogged in the middle of an American day. There's all sorts of you know, cats playing piano on YouTube being transmitted back and forth across the United States in the middle of an American day. I mean, so cyberspace actually defies geography. Cyberspace actually removes those distinctions because it tries to normalize, unify, connect right, vast pieces of territory in ways that essentially beat your intuition about what you think geography brings to bear. What's even more pernicious is your sense of who's in charge of what, who has what status based upon their physical presence of the world um, would also perhaps um, beat you if you simply relied upon geography. Uh, for example, kind of connecting these two layers, um, NSA is honor bound, not, like, not unlike any other institution within the United, Sto United States government, to treat a United States person exactly the same no matter where they are on the planet Earth. So if I find a United States person kind of in the middle of Yemen, I have to accord and extend to them the same privileges, right, the same benefits as if they were sitting in Des Moines, Iowa. It doesn't matter where they are on the planet Earth. So geography is not our friend in that regard. It's not a discriminant that I can rely on. Um, if you build this model out, you begin then to build the rest of cyberspace. Uh, this is the cyberspace I would have encountered when I came to work at NSA in 1985. Um, it was a very friendly place in those days. It was eminently understandable. It was still under the control of human beings. If you wanted to get a communication from one place to another on the planet Earth in 1985, um, you actually had to take a, an action, a human-based action. You'd pick up a phone, you'd dial a telephone number, you'd put a piece of paper on the fax. You would let that communication leave one sanctuary, make its way across some data link to another place, which was also a sanctuary on the planet Earth. Um, it was an eminently sensible place. And if you wanted to regulate right, the distinction between what NSA did in terms of collecting and exploiting communications or defending communications, you could do so based upon the distinction between you know, what link are you on, what's the physical right, distinction between those links, um, what's the purpose that's actually being affected this moment in time. Uh, but what happened between 1985 and probably somewhere in the early 2000 time frame is the links became so numerous, the capacity of the computers became so powerful, Right, the, aut the autonomous activities that were undertaken by those devices that we relied upon to figure it out um, became so autonomous right, that you know, human beings lost control of it. And that, in most cases, was a feature. Right? People would say, look, I don't need to worry about where my email is stored. I don't need to worry about where my wealth and treasure is at this moment in time. That's your problem. I've, con I've contracted for a service, and so I'd leave it to cyberspace to figure that out. And that's what then led to the fact that it defies intuition that communications from Pakistan to Yemen are sometimes stored on servers at Google, right? You know, that was a surprise that perhaps a lot of the world came to in June of 2013. Um, but it was the reality of this particular kind of artifact, which is the kind of non-existent but very real and material logic layer, which essentially is what drives the way that space works, uh, made that possible. Um, completing the model, you add all the devices in, whether you've got an iPad, iPod, you know, whether you've got Samsung Galaxy S4, there are many and varied things that essentially are the person's, people's attachment to this space, and that then constructs the model. 
if you're NSA in this world, you need to absolutely respect not simply the kind of bias of geography, right, which sometimes misleads us, but the kind of necessary and beneficial bias of the distinction of the status of persons. And But what you need to do is to connect that to the devices of interest, understand the logic layer, understand how the technology that is the links and the kind of modes of getting communications around the world, and ultimately place that somewhere on the planet Earth. And the difficulty for NSA, and I say this by way of explanation, not excuse, the difficulty for an NSA is that you need to keep those in sync at all times. They need to be perfectly synchronized in order for you to be compliant with not just the kind of should part, right, of your responsibility, but even the can part. It could be by way of example that U.S. Constitution would say kind of U.S. persons are sacrosanct, right, they have certain rights, unalienable right, privileges in the world, right, and therefore as you kind of, kind of do things in the middle of that space, you need to make sure you follow explicitly the delegated authorities of either the court or the executive branch um, and never, ever right, stray from what those kind of specifications might be. You therefore need to instantiate that in the operational practices that you would employ about how you catch a communication of interest, how you distinguish between and amongst persons of various distinctions. Um, you need to then embody that in technology, um, and you need to make sure that those three things, right, the Constitution, laws, that's one thing, right, the operational practices, that's the second thing, and the technology, that's the third thing. You need to make sure they stay in sync. If any one of those gets out of sync with the other two, um, it turns out you're in a place where you shouldn't be. Um, at NSA, I would say you're in a compliance moment. Um, and it turns out those don't naturally synchronize. And worse, they don't actually proceed at the same rate. Right? We like to think that technology roils faster than anything else. It typically turns over at rates of 6 to 18 months. But it turns out that operational practice, certainly of our adversaries, certainly of our teenagers, that turns over still faster. Right? And the enormous challenge is how do you reconcile those so that you have some comfort right, that the authorities you've delegated to an NSA as embodied, right, as articulated in the orders of the court, specifications by the executive branch, um, are faithfully implemented in the practices employed by NSA, faithfully implemented in the technology. It's not a trivial undertaking. Again, not by way of excuse, but by way of explanation as to why that's so darn hard. Um, to make matters worse, this changes from moment to moment. So at one moment in time, an individual might have three or four devices. I personally only have one device. That's about what I can manage. Um, my kids, though, three of whom um, kind of live in my house from time to time, have a combination of about 27 devices. Um, so that's what's represented here. Um, and in the next instant of time, right, they have different devices, and they have different representations on the planet Earth. It's an enormously complicated thing. Um, we can figure out any one of these layers, but the difficulty is how do you actually connect all five of these layers in a vertical fashion? How do you actually do that so that you reconcile you know, constitutions to laws to policies to operational practices, right, to the technologies that are embodied in that? Um, that's not um, an interesting problem. That's a necessary problem in terms of how we're going to ultimately solve this. Um, so the implications of this, um, kind of from, from my humble perspective, would be, um, first and foremost, there's not an away game, there's not a home game, there's one game, right? There's one network. And I'll later go to first principles to say we don't have a choice as to whether we then, on that network of networks, try to affect security for our people and at the same time a defense of civil liberties. I think you need to do both, right? The kind of consequence of convergence in the networks um, is that we have to somehow find a reconciliation, not a choice, right, between right, the two great goods that we know as security and privacy. Physical separation, which once was the answer, right, we kind of did our away game in one place, our home game in another, is no longer, right, um, a means by which we can keep this separate. The American public was greatly satisfied that in World War II, 
NSA um, or its kind of predecessors were kind of ruthlessly exploiting access networks and defending kind of the home networks, right? And there would never have been a question that you could or should find NSA on the home networks in those days. We should be essentially on the away field. Um, when in the summer of 2013, we find that NSA actually is kind of doing some work on the home networks, essentially making kind of presentations to the Googles, the AOLs, the Yahoo's of the world. People say, whoa, 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 you guys should be abroad, right? You're the away team. What, what are you doing here? It belies a misunderstanding of the true nature of these networks. Um, and I would say that kind of an answer to that, we need to then take a half step back as opposed to a plunge in to talk about what the first principles are. Um, not being a lawyer, I'm an engineer by training. Um, my bio would show that I know a lot about computer science, something about mechanical engineering, um, but I'm not well studied um, kind of on things like um, the law. Um, but the good news is, is the Constitution only being about 4,000 words, it's an easy read. Um, it says right up front that it's not a choice of either or, it's both. Right, right up in the preamble, it says that first principles say that we have to provide at once for the common defense, um, and we have to actually extend the blessings of liberty to our population. Um, and if that wasn't clear enough, if you then read through the first ten amendments, there are two further things that I think bear on this. The first is the Fourth Amendment, which makes it very clear right, that unreasonable search and seizure, which has been extended to the communications as property um, of our citizenry, um, you know, is an unalienable right. Um, maybe that's perhaps um, kind of a, a misappropriation of the terminology, but that's how the way it's interpreted at NSA. Uh, but even more important um, at a place like NSA is the Tenth Amendment. Um, which makes it very, very clear that if you're not authorized to do it, you're not authorized to do it, right? You know, that you have to actually exercise explicitly granted authorities, right? That those things that aren't explicitly extended to you are by definition, not by implication, but by definition not extended to you. And so you need to find cause as to what your authority is to do each and everything you do. And then within that, there are some policy choices about whether those things are, in fact, appropriate under the given circumstances. So summarizing all of that, I think the first principles read roughly the following. Regarding security and privacy, it's not one or the other, it's all three. That's my pithy way of saying there is actually something that's been missing from this conversation. The third leg of the stool is transparency, right, because kind of embodied in the Constitution and the laws that derive from that is this notion of the consent of the governed. Um, now, my hope in May of 2013, um, I have a note um, that would have been a month before right, this kind of whole controversy of the last year broke. In May of 2013, um, if you'd asked me where does that come from, I would say that comes from the people who stand in the shoes right, of the government. That comes from places like the Congress or the judiciary, which is another branch of government, which essentially makes sure that we've got these checks and balances and that we kind of act in a responsible but whole of government way in the best interest um, of the governed. Um, I think that, you know, what transpired then in the summer 2013, um, extending into the fall, was that there was a sufficient inflammation, right, of the governed, um, that I think we've actually got to go beyond that at this point in time, right? You've actually got to not simply kind of um, make, make it clear to the, those who stand in the shoes of the governed, but we actually take this case much more um, broadly to the American public and frankly to our allies, um, and therefore transparency is the third leg of that stool is going to be a very important way out of this. Um, I would remind that federal prerogatives, frankly, are not as um, flexible. Um, they're not as um, kind of possessed of the spirit of innovation as you might imagine. Uh, they're quite explicit. They're quite constrained. Um, you know, probably to the surprise of some in the room, if you'd asked the typical NSA analyst, um, do you feel more empowered or more constrained um, in your daily work? Um, they would immediately think that that's the dumbest question they've ever heard and said, constrained, of course, right? We are obsessed, right, with the things we can't do, um, and therefore we don't really think much about those things that we can do as kind of this spirit of innovation or discretion, 
Uh, now there are some from the outside looking in that say they perceive it completely different. Right? That's, um, I think, um, a fair right, perspective given what you've read. Um, we need to reconcile whether it's one or the other and how do we actually have a confidence that it's both. Um, authorities, controls, priorities, they're the things that truly drive not just an NSA but any institution right, of the federal government as the um, American public defines it. Um, and while we've talked a lot about capabilities right, over the last nine months, what might be possible given the capabilities that an NSA brings to bear, what's more important is to talk about this from a first principles perspective in terms of what's authorized, right? what are the controls that then ensure that those authorizations are kind of followed faithfully, what are the priorities, which really gets to the policy question, what are the things that we think inside of that envelope we should do, what makes sense to do, Right? and then let those drive the capabilities that then make those things possible. Uh, and I would offer that perhaps a big idea in this is that it's not just to make that possible for the nation of the United States to be comfortable with that, but a coalition of nations, right, to essentially treat intelligence surveillance as an instrument of international power, not simply national power. That's, I think, what we've been hearing from our allies of, you know, we think we derive some benefit from this. We'd like to know that we get more benefit than risk. Um, so summing up, the few f simple principles that, that I would kind of offer as a way to start this um, is to say that, you know, we acknowledge that governmental authorities are explicit, constrained, and that they're the collective work of multiple branches, right, that we can't have, you know, a fox guarding the hen house. Um, the authorities um, require the consent of the government, and that must be refreshed and sustained over time. The overtime part's really important. You know, what might have been a formulation that worked in 1942 clearly isn't going to work in 2014, but I'd go further to say what might have worked in 2006 might also be um, not fit for purpose in 2014. This requires a regular, frequent refreshment, um, and it requires that outside, right, you know, simply the executive branch and outside the government writ large, certainly given um, the equities that are at stake for the private sector. Capabilities, as I indicated earlier, are really important. We've had a large discussion about those capabilities, and we've had a breathless discussion about what those capabilities might do if cut loose or if misused or abused. Um, but we need to then concentrate back on um, how do the authorities kind of achieve the driver's seat in that regard? How do they drive? How do the controls that come with them um, constrain? How do the priorities guard? Um, and at the end of the day, um, the success will be measured as to whether we've achieved a reconciliation not simply between security and privacy, as opposed to security or privacy. Um, but how do we actually add that third piece, which is transparency, so that we can be confident about the balance that we've struck? Um, so achieving security and privacy and transparency, I think, um, has at least one test. I think we'll derive some number of other tests across the discussions we'll have over the next few days. Uh, but a construction and form consent through the whole of government co collaboration from conception through implementation. A proactive engagement of citizenry who possess the rights under law or through policy extensions. Now, that's my kind of oblique way of saying, uh, turns out, you know, it's um, a fairly fair premise to say we need to have this conversation in front, in front of 315 million Americans. It's going to be harder still, though, to have it in front of 7 billion people on the planet Earth because there's some number of people from a foreign intelligence perspective that you really don't want to know these secrets. You really do take an extraordinary risk on behalf of the 315 million Americans if you expose this to the rogue nations or the terrorists or the other iconic targets of an NSA. And so the challenge inside that piece is in being proactive about having this aspect of transparency join right, privacy and security um, on the kind of the world stage how do you go far enough to actually convince, to compel, um, you know, the organizations to behave in the right way without going too far that you've actually kind of given away some of the security equity that's really important? 
Um, and I would add this last piece on the slide, which is that there needs to be um, kind of not an obsession, but, but certainly a commitment to the principles of necessity and proportionality. Um, and these, I would tell you, within the U.S. intelligence community are not terms of art. They're not um, actually comfortable, familiar phrases. Um, we get to the same place, but I borrow these from our European cousins um, who essentially talk about the reconciliation of security and privacy um, through the mechanism of saying we will only kind of encroach upon privacy if we believe that through some reasoned um, dialogue there's a necessity for security to encroach upon privacy. And we only do that to the degree that is necessary, right, that it's in proportion um, to that need. Um, I think that we need to have that conversation, which again kind of reconciles this question of do we do these things because we can or do we do these things because they make kind of sense from a policy perspective, discriminate between the can and the should. Um, case studies, um, and I think this can be the discussion of multiple sessions we'll have across the next two days, but I would give a quick thumbnail analysis um, tonight and then open it to any and all questions that you might have. Um, the first case study is essentially the 215 program, the collection of telephone metadata into, across, and, and outside the United States. Um, and I describe that pithily as saying that's really um, a capability that's trying to fare the scene. It's trying to take what might be an observation that the U.S. intelligence community might make in the foreign domain about foreign plots, terrorist plots against the United States, and how do you actually connect that observation with the possibility that there might be a domestic nexus, there might be something in the United States, in the homeland, right, that is an extension of that plot. Right, based upon the observations of the 911 Commission, right, um, circa 2002-2003, who observed that NSA could see that there was, in fact, right before 911, there was in fact a plot that we now know in arrears was aimed against the United States. They couldn't see the distant end. They couldn't determine that the other end of that conversation that we observed in Yemen was in fact in San Diego. Right, and so the kind of the construction of a capability to try to figure out how to test the hypothesis. Right, that something crossed that same resulted ultimately across the years through a period of evolution. Any number of instantiations of that resulted in what we now know today as a 215 program, which says that if you have an hypothesis that this telephone number, right, there was an equivalent for email, but today it's just telephone numbers, that this telephone number is connected with a plot of a foreign terrorist organization into the United States, how do I test the hypothesis that there's a U.S. end to that, that there's in fact a conspiracy that crosses that scene? Right, the construction of a database that would essentially say we've got the haystack against which you could test that hypothesis, see whether there is in fact a United States end, um, and then in turn report that, tip that to a domestic security organization, the FBI, to say you need to pursue this threat. Right, that's what then led to the creation of the 215 program. That's the security premise that leads to the construction of the 215 program. What's not often talked about is how then do you kind of achieve fealty, right, to the need to defend civil liberties, to defend appropriately privacy? How do you not encroach too strongly upon privacy? I would observe the following. Right, that program, first and foremost, was defined only for application to terrorism, and even then only to specific subsets of what we know as foreign terrorist groups um, who would try to bring kind of mayhem and disaster to the United States. It's only a few terrorist groups. Um, so when asked by the Presidential Review Group in the September 2013 timeframe, what else do you use the 215 database for? Do you use that to perhaps understand the rise of, say, a domestic terrorist threat? No. And I thought that was a test question. The right answer is no. Right? That's proscribed. Uh, do you use that to track perhaps drug lords, right, who are kind of, you know, doing something that's equally injurious to the United States? No. 
do you use that to track perhaps the illegal immigration of kind of um, aliens in ways that violate the laws of the United States? No. Um, it might be useful for all those purposes, but it was constrained from use against those purposes in deference to the fact that it was already encroachment upon the potential privacy of U.S. persons, and therefore it constrained it from that. Um, the further constraints on it um, were that there is no collection of identity information in this database. We don't know who the telephone numbers are attributable to. There's no geolocation information in the database. It's only kind of stored for a certain period of time. Now, that five years uh, might offend some as being, wow, that's a long time. Perhaps that's too much. Right? We can negotiate as to whether five years, three years, two years, one year, kind of, you know, at all, right, is the right answer. Um, but you know the kind of the length of time was in fact um, specifically constrained. All of those were in deference not to this makes it more efficient to achieve the security purpose. All of those were defined um, in deference to this is what makes it reasonable in terms of the potential encroachment against the privacy of U.S. persons. Right, and so the construction of that was done in a way that actually tried to achieve both, and it was done by evolution, right, as opposed to by kind of masterstroke in the first day. And so you, if looking at the history of that, would have seen that over time, right, it was evolved over time to try to achieve a reasonably efficient and effective proposition in that regard. I'll kind of like leave that behind and come back to that in questions if you want to have any discussion about it. Uh, the second example that I would hold up is the kind of uh, the much maligned, uh, much discussed. Um, as Bob Schieffer said, you know, never in the field of national security have so many known so little about so much. Um, you know, 702 program, what is often described as the prison program. This, in many um, national um, perspectives, would be called a lawful intercept program, which is to say that you know, if you have some need um, for purposes of security, um, national security in this case, to know something about the content of communications of potential adversaries, um, and if you know that those communications might be held by a private concern, say telecommunications entities within the United States, then you provide a lawful mechanism, kind of an adjudicated mechanism by which the government might make a representation to those entities to say, you know, I have cause, right? It's kind of defined through some particular procedure, adjudicated by the court, defined by law, um, and executed by the executive branch. I have cause to know, right, to, to believe that this communication responsive to this selector, email address, telephone number, would be helpful to understand a national security threat. That's what most nations would call lawful intercept. Just about every industrialized nation on the planet does that. The United States does that under what we call the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Amendment Act of 2008, FAA for short. 702 is a subset of that. Right? That program um, essentially allows the United States intelligence um, entities, NSA in particular, right, to essentially target foreign persons right, who um, are legitimately targets um, for purposes of foreign intelligence. So it's not any foreigner um, for any purpose, but it's got to be a legitimate foreign intelligence purpose to target them, um, their communications, when they're in a foreign place using U.S. infrastructure. In saying that, I've essentially des described a three-part formulation. Right? You know, the person of interest has a foreign status. They're a foreign person. Right? The place where they are right, is a foreign location. But the collection itself takes place right, in the United States by virtue of a presentation of a court-authorized right, um, order right, to um, a vendor of interest. It might be Google or Yahoo, AOL. Right? Those have been much discussed across the, the time. Um, the reconciliation of the national security purpose right, to the defense of privacy, civil liberties, um, is affected by the way the program's constructed. Right? The program's constructed narrowly to say those three questions need to be answered in those precise ways. 
right? And given that there are U.S. persons necessarily, um, and innocent persons, foreign innocent persons, right, necessarily implicated, right, in those same networks, those same devices, those same services, right, you need to go through, right, very specifically, very precisely, the orders of the court informing your representation. Um, turns out that this law, the 702, right, derived from the FAA law, requires that the executive branch essentially describe a certification, that's the term of art, say, here's a purpose for which I want to use that. Terrorism is one that we've talked a lot about. Turns out there are two others, right? You can imagine what they are. But it's not for all purposes. It's not for gratuitous, right, insight into what any person might be doing on the planet Earth. It needs to be with some sense of necessity and proportionality. Uh, turns out the government needs to form those queries in that way, make a representation, right, to the telecommunications providers, get a very responsive, precisely surgically formed response, um, and then deal with the information that comes back, right? Um, that information that comes back then creates a kind of pile of material, right, certain communications that are directly responsive to those foreign intelligence queries that the intelligence community then is obligated to kind of parse and understand and report out. Um, and inside of that, there are all sorts of secondary and tertiary questions about how do you deal with that, and that may then be a rich source of questions or material for the rest of this conference. So I won't go further in that regard. Simply to say that in the construction of each of these, there has been um, an acknowledgement of the first principles, that the government in constructing this is trying to actually be responsive to both security and the defense of civil liberties, not necessarily in that order, but both of those. Um, and what's perhaps been wanting, right, in the construction of all of those is sufficient transparency that people either understand it and accept it the way it is or understand it and say, I'm now in a position to argue for a change based upon a true understanding of the facts as opposed to my bias, my preconceived notion of what those facts might be. Um, so a way forward um, might be that we kind of achieve some reconciliation of all three of these prospects in a reasoned, reasonable, and proactive debate. Um, that might then um, cause us to raise our voices from time to time, but we should not deter from that because it kind of achieves a conflict of ideas. That's actually a feature in the American democracy. Um, what, what I have despaired over the last nine months is that we've had a conflict of people or a conflict of ideologies that's more fundamental, more personal than that. Um, that's not helpful. That's why I particularly welcome this venue. Um, where I think we're going to have a rich discourse and perhaps a conflict of those ideas so that we can get to a fair reconciliation. We will take each other to places no one of us could have gotten to alone. Um, we need to then leverage all components of governance, not least of which is the private sector's role in this, right? They're kind of implicated in this. Um, and increasingly as a big idea, see intelligence not simply as a national um, kind of um, instrument of power, but an international instrument of power, such that you know those who essentially have similar views, similar principles, similar values, right, can stand beside us and say this is a reasonable way to proceed um, in a domain of interest, cyberspace that's not owned uniquely, not simply by the United States government or by the United States private sector, but by the world writ large. Um, I just close with this particular slide, which is, and this I would kind of note is a slide that. Um, General Alexander is the director of NSA in about 2012, started to use in his presentations. Um, I would note that that's um, you know, arguably at least a year before right, this became perhaps um, de rigueur in terms of kind of making this protestation. Um, but to display um, civil liberties and security not as balances on a scale where you actually necessarily give away one to achieve some kind of component of the other, um, but perhaps as both being deserving of your full time and attention um, such that if they're not straight and true, parallel, if they both don't stand, if they both don't stand on a solid foundation, right, then, then you're probably in a place where you haven't achieved enough of one right, to essentially um, warrant um, your achievement of the other. 
right? And so they um, both deserve our full time and attention. Um, if there was a possibility of putting a third rail in here, the electricity that juice that drives the train, it would be transparency. Uh, I just close by, you know, one perhaps then request of, of us, but, but in particular of myself in the conversation, which is we all come to the conversation with our preconceived notions, our biases, the experience that we've had across our lives kind of informs a theory of the world um, and would say that, you know, sometimes that's helpful. Um, the experience will be very useful. Sometimes that's dangerous. Um, say the intelligence world, um, we, we have learned over time that it's very dangerous to start with a theory and to look for information to support that theory. Um, the Iraq WMD example is one such case where we started with the theory which says uh, we think we've got pretty high intuition, confidence that the Iraqis have weapons of mass destruction. Uh, destruction. Uh, let's see if we can't find evidence to support that theory, that thesis. Uh, it turns out it's pretty easy to do that. Um, and it's then easy to discount all the information that perhaps doesn't meet that theory, meet that model. Um, or perhaps a more um, poignant example would be, um, as, as you kind of read these um, summations of people who believe that there are intelligent creatures in the world outside um, the planet Earth, um, intelligent aliens who have visited the Earth from time to time, people who absolutely believe that and look around for information to perhaps support that thesis um, would quickly observe, it turns out that at about the same time there were pyramids built in Egypt and pyramids built in Mexico that had roughly the same size, shape, and form. Right? And how could that be explained but for the fact that aliens visited the planet Earth right, and essentially constructed these things according to similar um, blueprints? Nobody could have made the transit across the Atlantic Ocean in those days. When somebody thoughtfully and carefully observes right, a contrary kind of piece of data which says it might just be that if you pile up rocks any other way, they fall down. I'd say, no, no, no. Um, this is only explained by kind of the theory that says that there are intelligent creatures outside the kind of galaxy who came and, and essentially deposited in the planet Earth. I would observe that, you know, particularly from an NSA, given the narrow experience that we've got in these affairs, we sometimes fall into the rut of saying, you know, I think I know how this works. I'm now looking for data to support that theory. Um, I think we're all in a better place if we follow Bobby's right, kind of guidance, which is that the diversity in this room is a feature, not a challenge. Right? And the reconciliation of those diverse perspectives and the experience they bring to bear based upon a true examination of the data and what it tells us, as opposed to how it might or might not support the theory that we came into the room with, is the path out of the room, is the path to reconciliation of these two great goods that are embodied in the Constitution and so many of the legal and, I think, um, institutional constructs in the world. Um, so with that said, I'd be delighted to, with whatever time we have remaining before we need to get a good night's sleep and hit the ground running tomorrow morning, take any and all questions you would have.